Hello, Vass here. Welcome to the show. Long-time listeners may remember that this is not the only podcast How To Academy makes. We also release all of our daily live stream events in a special podcast that's exclusive to members of our How To Plus subscription service. And once a month, we make a show called Found In Conversation. It's a discussion programme bringing together thought leaders from How To Academy with the team at Pictay to explore fresh ideas for understanding and improving the modern world. I wanted to share the most recent episode with you on the metaverse. It stars philosopher David Chalmers and game designer Jane McGonagall. You can find more episodes of Founding Conversation on Apple and Spotify. Enjoy. You're standing on a street corner, waiting for the monorail that will take you from your home downtown to a quieter, less heavily developed part of town. It's nighttime, and the lights are as bright and garish as Las Vegas. Nevertheless, the houses around here are tasteful. A mixture of Victorian replicas and Frank Lloyd Wright's dazzling architectural masterpieces. You smile at your neighbor as he steps out of his front door and waves at you with his thick, furred hands. You laugh and snort a little fire through your nose, as only a half-human, half-dragon creature can. You preferred his old avatar, when he looked like Captain Kirk from Star Trek. You don't have anything against him now, wearing a clown's head and a chimpanzee's body, but for some reason, you just can't take him seriously. Welcome to the Metaverse, a virtual reality conceived by the cyberpunk novelist Neil Stevenson in Snow Crash, a dystopian satire written in 1991 that will go on to become Silicon Valley's favorite work of fiction. Stevenson's metaverse inspired the founders of Online World Second Life, the team at Microsoft that built the Xbox console, and many more luminaries of our digital age. Today, its most famous fan is Mark Zuckerberg, who has renamed his company Meta Platforms to show his commitment to the metaverse. But in 2022, more than 30 years after Stevenson coined the word, the company formerly known as Facebook is far from the only organization competing to build a real-life metaverse. Are virtual worlds really our future? And what can the game designers, philosophers, and business leaders of today Tell us about the world to come. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. In this episode, we take a journey into the metaverse. Joining us for the trip are David Chalmers, professor of philosophy at New York University and the author of Reality Plus, Jane McGonigal, game designer, futurist, and author of Imaginable, and Shanil Ramji, a senior investment manager from Big Day Asset Management. The host of this conversation is Speak Dead's own Clara Bertrand. So my first question to all of you, some people have compared asking what is the metaverse to those asking what is the internet in the 1990s. 
Do you think this comparison is accurate? Is the metaverse truly groundbreaking or just a buzzword whose value we are overestimating? David, would you like to start? Sure. I think the metaverse has become something of like a fluid and contested concept that basically stands for yeah the future of the internet and the future of reality, technology, whatever that is. I mean, Neil Stevenson introduced it in his novel Snow Crash in the early 1990s as a name for a highly specific virtual world, a virtual space in which people would go and live their lives or live they'd work, they'd play, they'd build relationships and community. Over time I think um and people talk for a while for years about building a metaverse in the Neil Stevenson style. Now it seems um the tendency is to talk about the metaverse which is you know the space of all of those virtual worlds a massive interconnected global network that's perhaps a you know the successor to the internet the immersive internet but there's no agreement about just what that involves some people think it's all about virtual reality and augmented reality some people might think it's all about uh, blockchain and setting things up with decentralized technology that way as far as i can um facebook you know renamed themselves meta to pursue the metaverse i think with the vision that this would be the future of social media just experienced immersively for me i think it's basically it's a way of thinking about a global network of virtual reality but no it's not new uh when william gibson first talked about cyberspace in 1982 i think he had pretty much this vision of the metaverse in mind it's just gradually becoming concrete as we develop the technology jane what's your take on on this question I think the most interesting question about the metaverse right now is not about the technology so much as David said the technologies of the metaverse have been incredibly popular for decades now Fortnite is a metaverse Pokemon Go is a metaverse Minecraft is a metaverse but the question that's being asked now that I find interesting is are we living with a metaverse or in the metaverse when we consider our experiences and our property that we have in this virtual reality as meaningful and significant as the experiences we have in our non-digital lives i mean to me that's the tipping point that is more important than the technology because that's where we really start to see kind of strange unexpected social consequences economic consequences and political consequences i'm not sure if i believe that we will arrive at such a future but that's the question that i'm tracking to kind of see you know have we arrived at that future shanil i think i would agree that it's more of an evolution right now than necessarily a revolution but i think jane's point's really interesting in the sense that it is what it means to us and is that meaningfulness of the metaverse becoming more uh, ingrained in what we do and how we experience life and now that we trust the mechanisms around that the infrastructure around that does it become more real for us and i think that's the interesting time that we're in it's really whether that experience is more real to us individually Can you explain the difference between the matrix concept and the metaverse? Yeah, I think of the matrix. I mean the matrix is in a certain way just a massive full-scale version of the metaverse. It's a massive virtual world. But I think there's a 
difference in orientation in the way we think about the matrix and the metaverse. For me, the matrix stands for the hypothesis that we are in a virtual world already, sometimes called the simulation hypothesis. Could all this be a virtual world? We didn't create this virtual world. This would be a virtual world that someone else created that we are in. And many people have seriously entertained the idea that we could be in a virtual world like the Matrix. But that's kind of it's it's that's on the side of philosophy and science fiction speculation. I think of the metaverse as standing for the virtual worlds that we create or that we will create in the coming decades. For me, it kind of stands for the, uh, you know, the practical project of trying to build these virtual realities. So whereas the Matrix is the, the virtual world we're already in, the metaverse are the worlds we create. Of course, it could be that the worlds we create end up being very much like a Matrix scenario. Maybe there'll eventually be simulated people within them who will ask, could I be in the Matrix right now? So yeah, one person's metaverse could end up being another person's Matrix. Mm, if I can jump in there, you know, I'm really fascinated by the psychological impacts of people exploring the hypothesis that we are living in a simulation. And, you know, what happens if a large number of people start to consider that a plausible explanation for our reality? You know, how do we behave differently? How do we feel differently? And, you know, I mean, as one of my sort of pet projects that I've been working on for a few years is actually a self-help book called How to Live in a Simulation, which is the same name as the original paper that proposed this theory, the scientific paper. And I mean, because I think I'm not sure I ascribe to that theory myself, but if if suddenly millions of people believe this is true and start living their lives, you know, it would be nice to have a guide to meaning. And it's it's really the same philosophical questions we're grappling with as we look towards the metaverse, you know, whether whether that counts, how do we create meaning and a sense of beauty and wonder and purpose in that virtual reality, or if this itself is a virtual reality, how do we feel like it still counts and not waste it? And so it's like this this whole spectrum, this sort of continuum of questions we're asking both philosophically and technologically, but I don't think we know yet how we will navigate it so that we still have, you know, intensely purposeful human lives. That's that's very, very interesting, actually, which brings me to the next question to you, Jane, is, you know, as you're a highly venerated game designer, can you tell us what draws people into these game worlds and are they actually escaping reality or something or is it something more complex? Yes. I mean, I don't think of games primarily as escapist. I think that is a term that it's like a misdirection. We actually know that people who spend a lot of time playing games, they develop skills and psychological strengths and relationships that very much trickle into their everyday lives. I often try to use the term whole lives rather than real life in comparison to gaming, because when we talk about games as if they're not real, then we miss the opportunity for all of the the good things that we build in developing games to actually impact our whole lives. And 
I do think there is something unique, though, about the magic circle of video games and computer games. They feel like a safe space to explore different identities, to practice skills and be bad at something without consequence so we can actually learn and improve in a way that there's not anxiety about our failures. And we can connect with people who are different from ourselves because we're putting our time and attention on the same challenges and our characters are developing this sense of progress and growth. And, you know, it's it's just lovely to be able to have a space where we don't have to worry about consequences to our experimentation or to not being amazing at something. We have this sort of growth mindset. And it would be better, I think, to think of games not not quite as escapist, but as returnist. You know, what can I bring back to other aspects of my life from these games? And and just from my own research on gamers, there is this fluidity. And I would expect as we head into the days of the metaverse or the metaverses, if we think there might be multiple versions, that we'll, we'll need to continue to look closely at this fluidity. And I don't know what kinds of things we might develop in a metaverse that we don't in traditional video games, but that will be important to watch and see how it's manifest in the rest of our lives. Chenille, you know, over the past years, the, the metaverse has cemented itself as a strong investment theme of the future. Facebook has recently changed its name to Meta. It is, as they say, trending. Why now? And did COVID accelerate the development of the metaverse and worth our attention? Or is it just merely a hyped buzzword? I think COVID really allowed us to accept the fact that we are able to build and experience and live in communities through a digital space. And we've become very comfortable doing that. And in terms of the investment implication of that, the power of communities is so strong. And I think Mark Zuckerberg and the likes have, have really understood that. The network effect, the community power um, that is brought by bringing people together through a digital space in a truly borderless way is extremely interesting and, and can be very lucrative. We already experience so much of our lives in a, in a digital way. Today, it's just in a 2D plane. Some theories of the metaverse, of course, think of it in, in a 3D plane. And that is clearly where the gaming realm has already got to very quickly. And we think we, we can get there in the corporate world also. But there's another interpretation of the metaverse is how do these communities online or that exist digitally, how do you service them with digital goods, digital services, this digital economy that can grow out of these digital communities could provide a new economy to the world. And I think this is where the investment thesis starts to become very interesting. And, you know, I think as we look at the economy, I, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the feasibility of, I, I feel like the, the dreams for this metaverse economy often hinge on there being a kind of interoperability, right? That you have an asset that you can take from environment to environment. It goes forward with you. It gains value. And from the game design and game development community, there's been a lot of skepticism about the feasibility of interoperability. You know, just thinking about a simple example, if I have a weapon in Fortnite, can I bring it to visit you on your island in Animal Crossing? You know, we have these two virtual worlds with different cultures and values and 
what does it mean to be technologically interoperable and to have this sort of economic fungibility, but but to have cultures where maybe we do want to enforce different uh, types of interactions or experiences, you know, does that challenge the the feasibility of of the metaverse economy? Would you have any thoughts on that? So I guess one vi- one vision of the metaverse is it's like the early days of the internet. Uh, you know, the internet was this open set of standards and protocol for everybody. Nobody controlled the internet. And there was a whole lot of interoperability because of these shared standards. Now, as the internet has evolved, it's gradually gotten more and more platformized with all these uh, these walled gardens that, uh, that uh, have trouble talking to each other. And I think some people have this vision of an open metaverse that will be like the early days of, uh, of the internet with some open standards set out for everybody. But insofar as the development of the metaverse is going to be controlled by these platforms like uh, like Meta and Apple coming out with their own uh, their own product and uh, and Google and so on it's very easy to see uh you know just a, a space of I don't know if you'd call them different metaverses or just different corners of the metaverse each running under their own standards and protocols because I guess the thought is if we have to stick to uh, developing open standards for all of this then uh Often the technology is just going to leave that behind. I take it that's what's happened with uh, with gaming. Different people pursuing the technology in different directions makes it very hard to maintain this kind of interoperability and commonality. I think um, at the beginning, what's really interesting is the development of the technology through uh, these wall gardens or through the incumbents is is going to be important to encourage adoption. But I think the real benefit will be when we are able to move past that and and create a metaverse that is open and that is that allows true ownership over digital assets, digital worlds from a non-curated way, a non-centralized way, um, and I think that that is where ultimately one would hope it goes to. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. The concept of a virtual reality is one with a long and illustrious history in philosophy long predating the emergence of digital technologies. In 1641, René Descartes imagined an evil demon who used supernatural powers to deceive him into believing in an illusory world of external things, tricking him into believing not only in earth and sky and trees, but even the existence of his own body and sense organs. In Chinese philosophy, a similar idea can be found in the work of Zhuangzi and his famous claim that upon waking from a dream of being a butterfly, he could not be sure he was not in fact truly a butterfly dreaming of being a man. 
Jane, you have a background in performance studies and, and have thrived both as a, a game designer and as a futurist. Can you tell us how you came to this fascinating career and how your different professions speak to and complement one another? Yes, what a great question. Thank you. You know, I do see that my job as both a game designer and a futurist is to help people imagine things that are hard to imagine just in our own mind, either because they're virtual worlds that are so different from our everyday physical reality in a game, or because they're, they're possible futures, possible worlds we might wake up in, but we've never experienced them directly. Humanity has never lived through them before. And I think there is a lot of similarity in the tools that game designers use and futurists use to try to transport people to these essentially alternate realities. And while I did do a lot of game development early in my career, I have become more interested now in, you know, the past decade on trying to create these really immersive simulations of possible futures that we might live through, you know, so most famously, I was running simulations of pandemics more than a decade ago that did very accurately predict surprising social consequences and behaviors. We were looking at misinformation theory and mask shaming and all kinds of strange things that that people were able to predict that they would do by participating in these imaginary futures and, you know, looking ahead to things like how we might deal with climate migration as technologies start to incorporate neurosensing capability, how that might change our social interactions, our relationships. You know, it's good to give ourselves a little extra time. You know, what can we do with a decade of bringing our best thinking and imagination to the ethics, to the unanticipated or unintended consequences um, so that we we have a little more time and space in the same way that games are magic circles and we can be different versions of ourselves and try different strategies in a safe environment. You know, the future is, is like a magic circle too. If we, if we give ourselves the runway, you know, not imagining how we would handle something that might happen tomorrow or next week, which it's, you know, it's, it's too present to really have that time spaciousness. But if we imagine things we might have to live through five or 10 years, we can have that same sort of magical quality of a game where we are free to imagine doing things differently and exploring strategies and behaviors. And speaking of the future, Chanil, how can futurist games help us predict how the economy will grow and, and which companies will thrive? Are there any systems already in place? I think it's interesting to take examples of uh, futurist games or even the gaming industry as a whole and, and look at how the behavior of these communities uh, evolve and what do they require while they, as these scenarios change and how do industries pop up around that to service these communities, whether they're in, in the gaming world, for example, uh, the music community going into the gaming world and developing music specifically for games. And that's an industry in of itself for whether it's avatar skins, whether it's weapons for certain games. You know, th these are lots of industries that have developed around the gaming industry, which we find extremely interesting because we see these ecosystems evolve between the wants and needs of these individual societies. And, and for us, when we think about how games or gaming evolves, we can, we can see how presumably communities in the metaverse will have certain needs and wants in the future. 
and how can we anticipate what that might be or what works for those individual communities. So I think we've got a very uh, interesting live test case, especially when it comes to the gaming community. Jane, what does a professional futurist like yourself do? You know, you, 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 what mental habits do you practice and, and how can forecasting the future benefit us only on a professional level, but on a psychological one as well? You coined the phrase, foresight is a human right. Can you elaborate on that? Mm, yes. Well, I mean, we're living through a profound psychological crisis today. Um, particularly younger generations feel like they don't have agency to shape the future or they're grieving for the future already. This sort of anticipatory anxiety about how severe climate change might be. And when you talk to people, particularly in the age group 16 to 25, there was a landmark survey by, that was published in Lancet Planetary Health Journal just a few months ago, where they found roughly two thirds of young people worldwide between the ages of 16 and 25 said they agreed with the statement that humanity is doomed and that they personally have no future. They just literally can't imagine a future that feels happy or secure. And I think that is, I mean, it's a, it's a tragedy. It's a form of suffering that I don't know that we've ever experienced on such a mass scale. And if people feel they have no future, I mean, that is, I, I think that is depriving people of a fundamental human right to live a life in which we can have authentic hope and agency, the feeling of the ability to impact the future. So I do try to develop future scenarios, you know, these immersible stories about worlds we might wake up in that allow young people to realistically envision, okay, wait, this does sound like a plausible reality that it comes from signals of change we can see happening today or, or real technologies or scientific breakthroughs or social movements that could gain traction and really change the world. It feels plausible and it feels like a world I want to wake up in. And so I do try to describe what does it look like if we've taken successful climate action? What does it feel like if there has been transformative change in terms of economic inequality or economic opportunity so that the people can live lives with, you know, it's, it's, it's just as important that we have these realistic, meaningful, virtual realities in our mind of, of worlds that we may wake up in one day, right? Not as escapist, but because the future is what motivates us and, and allows us to live through, you know, all of the, the difficulties and stresses and pain of today. So just like we need to create virtual realities that we can escape to in, in the form of games or art, storytelling, um, we need futures that we can visit and derive hope from. And taking the idea of, of future scenarios, Chenille, you know, as an investment specialist, you, you engage in, in a kind of future prediction too. And what tools help you predict economic fluctuation and, and anticipate which companies will thrive? Are they, you know, are they similar to the ones that Jane just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, just listening to Jane there is fascinating because if we really believe that us as, a, uh, as agents of an economy or the human race or want, want to progress, we have to think about the incentive structure to progress. What does success look like? So if we're an individual, a company, a country, an economy, how do we succeed in, in our endeavors? And what does it take to achieve that success? How will those agents in the economy go about it? And what are the challenges 
to that success? What are the consequences, unintended or otherwise? And how do that? How does that get overcome? And this creates a variety of paths. And if we can assess those parts, we can at least have a view about what could a framework around the future look like. For us, it's all about probabilities, and we have to think about both the risks and the rewards when we think about that framework. But I think in in the same vein as Jane thinks about that future and what we need to achieve that future, I think that's really what the incentive structure for all agents in an economy is. And um, that's one of the ways we go about it also in investment. And David, you know, in a place where where carefully designed avatars roam, what are the dangers? Oh, yeah. Well, given that virtual realities are going to be on a par with physical realities, then I think that makes what happens in virtual worlds all the more meaningful, which means it can be wonderful, but it also means it could be awful. And there's a lot of potential. I think there's a lot of potential for both when it comes to uh, to virtual worlds. I mean, I wonder, I worry about, I mean, I recognize the amazing role that, say, you know, corporations have played in developing the virtual worlds we have so far. But if, if we end up with a metaverse where all the virtual worlds are controlled by, by corporations, I do worry that their incentives are somewhat different from the, uh, the incentives of the people living in those worlds. It's, you know, ultimately, it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be financial and corporations' motives in, in maximizing income may be different from those of, of users. Now, when it's just video games and so on, that's one thing. When this becomes the world in which we're living our lives, then you know, do we want do we want the entire structure of our physical reality to be driven by corporate incentives? Especially given that whoever creates a virtual world is um, potentially you know a god has godlike powers with respect to that virtual world. They can know what's going on in principle. They can control what's going on. And in a way, this kind of this takes issues which are already present, say, with social media, privacy, manipulation, and so on, which are already major major downsides of social media, if those become present at every level in, say, in the, in the, in the world we live in, if everything that goes on in our life is transparent to our corporate overlords, uh, if everything is manipulated. So I very much hope this goes along with developing the new forms of life. We're experimenting with different forms of governance where users get to control some virtual worlds, where states get to control some virtual worlds, where there are decentralized versions. I mean, none of these offer a panacea. I mean, none of these are routes to utopia. Maybe the less control there is, the more room there is for many things to go wrong. Safety is, of course, a huge issue already in uh, in virtual worlds. And yeah, insofar as people give up on controlling and manipulating virtual worlds, does it, does it then mean that these are going to be worlds of chaos where people can, can assault or take advantage of each other? So I think, yeah, there's many, we just haven't begun to think, I think, in the level we need to about the uh, the governance virtual worlds and there's many issues to work through there. Now, I had an interesting debate, I will say, um, recently with someone about just one possible feature of metaverses that might afford more user safety. It's this idea of bubbles, right? That, that there's a safety bubble around your avatar that prevents people, unless you've explicitly given them permission, from from physically interacting with your avatar. Um, and, and 
many of the women that I've talked to in particular see this as like, a, as this should be the default, right? I should have to opt into allowing somebody to physically interact with my avatar. That sounds like the right way to embark on social interactions. You know, by default, I have autonomy. I have a, a secure body boundary. But, you know, many men see that as like, a last resort. Well, it, you know, it's like blocking people on Twitter. By default, anybody should be able to come up and interact with each other. And it's only if they have done something that you find offensive or violating, then then you block them. And this, I find this a very interesting conversation. Like, as we start to think about the consequences and the dangers of these worlds, you know, do we start from a position of trying to make it as safe and secure as possible? And which I think would be a more inclusive approach. Or do we take the same sort of wild west approach that the internet took where, you know, it was like, well, you know, anything goes, free speech, free interaction, and, you know, worst case scenario, you will find a way to sort of block you or keep you safe. I, I'm optimistic that we could try something different with the metaverse than we've tried with the internet and social media so far, because um, the same people who are historically harmed or at risk in the real world for gender, for their ethnicity and race, for their sexual orientation are also at risk in the metaverse. And it would be nice if we were designing worlds where by default we felt secure rather than having to have that as a, I don't know, backup. The futurist Ray Kurzweil is also an advocate for the most far-reaching concept of a metaverse, the idea that in the near future, we will become digitally connected to one another at a neurological level and escape mortality by uploading our minds to live fully digital lives. In an effort to live until such technologies are created, the 74-year-old Kurzweil consumes 100 pills a day and maintains a very strict diet. He has been called a restless genius by the Wall Street Journal and the ultimate thinking machine by Forbes. But some of his fellow computer scientists are less convinced that his predictions of the future will come to pass. Only time will tell us who is correct. I'd like to consider who the winners and the losers might be in the metaverse and what dangers and opportunities it presents to the world. So, Chenille, what personally drew you to the metaverse and can we consider it an emerging market? I definitely think about it as a, as a new market, as a frontier market. Uh, I think about it as, you know, the, the markets that we possibly saw in the 17th or 18th century where we moved away from being uh, feudal societies and these uh, economies controlled by uh, a fixed set of um, entities. Uh, and today, the modern internet is is controlled by a few platforms, and um, we know that it is restricted from a in a certain sense, and and is built for those platforms in a sense. But moving to the metaverse, I have uh, a bit of optimism that. If we can create something like digital property rights in the metaverse, I think that it's, it's extremely interesting, um, like we created individual property rights in the 17th and 18th century, because it allowed us to create an asset. And if individuals or users have assets, then that means there's a value that, that is ascribed to the user rather than the platform. And I think that idea becomes very interesting in building an ecosystem 
an economy that is totally different from the one that we have today, which where a lot of the, the wealth accrues to the platform, we could create a, a metaverse where the value accrues to the user. And from that, you can build such a big ecosystem around how that asset is used, how that asset is secured, how that asset is built and accumulated. So for me, I think the ability to create these digital property rights is fascinating. And that's really been one of the key elements that has drawn me to this um, idea. Jane, is there a risk of neglecting the physical world? And I mean both the natural world and our own individual bodies by, you know, immigrating fully into cyberspace. Should we not be worrying about the people in the real world rather than creating more worlds? Yeah, I mean, I yes. I mean, I just want to be totally transparent. I, I find it's like delusional, the idea that we're just going to leave the real world behind. And I don't think anybody who's building this technology is suggesting that. However, I do think when you ask the question, who will be the winners and the losers in the metaverse or what will help some, you know, someone win? I do think there's a growing cultural divide and, and some kind of, you know, social and I think righteous anger at the idea that, you know, we're going to settle on Mars or we're going to build the metaverse and we're going to let, you know, the real world burn and that people who can afford to escape to a metaverse or to another planet are going to perpetuate the lack of action around climate issues. And, you know, you normally young people are the earliest adopters of any new technology and they set the culture and they set the norms. But, in my research, I do not see young people, apart from the economic promise, it's sort of like the the sort of quick riches, speculative aspects of the Web3 economy. They're buying cryptocurrency because they don't see economic opportunity in you know traditional currency. So there's like the sort of economic escape that young people are very much excited about. But the idea that we were going to go to, you know, virtual realities and let the earth burn it makes this whole conversation seem ridiculous and creates a lot of, you know, I think social tension anxiety. So when I think, you know, how, how are metaverse technologies going to win? I think it's going to be very important to not, I don't think we should ask questions like, will we, you know, leave the real, because that, that is uh, what young people who are going to be driving adoption of this technology or rejecting it, they don't want to leave the real world behind. They want to fix the real world too. So I love, you know, David's ideas that we can use metaverses as like utopia test grounds, run our social science experiments, run our economic experiments, have a, have a metaverse multiverse where we can learn about what might work and then use it to fix reality. That's exciting to me. I think that is a, a, an opportunity for humanity and, and we should just be real careful about how we talk about, you know, I, if we're just trying to escape or create an alternative to the real world, I don't think that's what people want. I don't think there's going to be buy-in to that, that vision or a technology that offers that promise. So let's lead us to our final and our last question. Many of the stories around virtual reality are dystopian by nature. What are people afraid of and how can we ensure that the metaverse we build is a better world and not a nightmare world? I think what we have to uh, allow people to realize is that the metaverse ultimately will be our creation and it'll be a product of the creative ability of 
of all the all the people that ascribe to it. And I think that's fascinating. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think the the idea that we will fully divorce ourselves or only go there because the real world is is in trouble is is not true. And I think the, the conversation that we've had today illustrates how both can work together, both can offer solutions to one another and a way for us to, for both worlds to coexist is likely going to be one that is a, is a thriving concept rather than a dystopian one. So I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to be able to embrace both in increasing that sense of creativity uh, if, we're allow- if we allow ourselves to. I think the biggest risk right now is that we don't make the metaverse different enough from the world that we have experienced so far. I don't think we want a monoculture where the metaverse is the same everywhere you go. We have to take advantage of the affordance of this technology to experiment and experience different realities. And I also think we want to avoid any kind of authoritarian sort of control over the metaverse where one organization or one government, one entity, one community is enforcing a particular system or, you know, centrally located power. I think we want to avoid making the economy so similar to our existing capital economy. I mean, what David said about how far do we want to take this idea of artificial scarcity? I realize it creates value and I understand the intention behind it. But it seems to me that scarcity or perception of scarcity is behind a lot of our anxiety, a lot of our tribal conflicts. I mean, why would we want to make things scarce when technologically it doesn't have to be? And so I think I I would really be afraid that we're not willing to make the metaverse different enough and really experiment with new forms of of society and governance and economies. Yeah, it's true there's no shortage of dystopian visions of uh, of virtual worlds and metaverse-like realities. You know, the Matrix, I guess, is a prime example of a dystopian vision. We're led to believe uh, this is an awful world to be living in and you'd want to get right out. But, you know, a lot is... I think a lot is going on in these these cases. I don't think what's dystopian about, say, the Matrix is that it's a virtual world. Rather, it's the character of that virtual world. And I think really the key thing that we object to in thinking about these matrix-like worlds is the control. It's the manipulation, which Jane was talking about. Um, you know, the machines are controlling these worlds and using us for their, uh, for their purposes, and we don't really have genuine autonomy. So I guess I think that, you know, in going in to building our, our virtual worlds, we need to make sure these are worlds where people have freedom and autonomy, not worlds where they are, uh, you know, controlled or manipulated, which could very easily happen in, uh, you know, depending on who makes these virtual worlds and what their incentives are. We need these to be worlds where people have yeah, freedom to build their own lives, to make, to construct their own identity, to build their communities, to, uh, to you know, to overcome oppression, to do all the things that we associate with freedom and autonomy in the uh, the physical world, if there's a yeah, if there's a dangerous dystopian here, it's a world where somehow manipulation and uh, and control wins out. But I, I'm an optimist. I'm a, I'm hopeful that we'll we'll find a way to be able to you know develop virtual worlds where we really have that freedom 
and autonomy to, to build our, our own lives. Well, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for, for this intriguing, insightful talk. Thank you, Jane and, and David and, and Chenille for, for being on this Metaverse Founding Conversation episode. And we're super happy to, to have you uh, amongst this series. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you. This episode of Founding Conversation starred Professor David Chalmers, Dr. Jane McGonigal, and Chenille Ramji. The host was Clara Bertrand. The show is a collaboration between Big Them, one of Europe's leading wealth and asset managers, and the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing big thinking. The executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.